Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollacorn Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Series 5, Revisiting Mythical Women. Episode 5, Revisiting Bridget. It was the first time keening had been heard in the Greenland of Ireland. The poetry of mourning, the ritual of the eulogy. Brig keened for her lost son, her impetuous red-headed boy, Ruthorn. Ruthorn was dead. Killed by the spear of Govnu and the smithcraft of the Dodonan, killed as a spy in the forge. Why did it have to be her son who was chosen? Why did it have to be him? Not hard the answer. She herself had played a part in his choosing. It had been her choosing to give allegiance to Bresh, a man of the Fovera. He, he was beautiful, yes, and wise in the ways of the land but he was cruel and miserly. It had seemed fitting when Nurda, leader of the people that Adalan had been maimed, it had seemed fitting then to choose a chieftain from among the Fovera, those strange sea people who shared their land. It had seemed fitting then. Bresh, her husband, had put her people under a great burden of tax, keeping them in poverty. Why, he had even set her own father, the Dagda himself, to work building great ditches of earth. But battle had still not been averted. Now Lu, the Ildonok, master of many crafts, led her people. Lu, who, who like Ruathorn, was a son and grandson of both Fovaran and Dodonan. Lu with his Fovaran mother and his Dodonan father. Ruathorn with his Dodonan mother and Fovaran father. So alike. Only Ruathorn was dead. The Fovaran were worried. They sent for Ruathorn, one of the few who was welcome in both camps. Why is it, they asked the boy, why is it that the weapons of the enemy are never blunted? Why is it that warriors we injure return to face us again each day? And Ruathorn, her son, his father's son, had answered them, Oh, not hard to tell. The warriors are renewed, dipped in the waters of the well of Slonia, uh, Dienkerk's well of health. Not hard to tell. The weapons are resharpened each day in the skilful forge of Govna the smith. And Ruathorn had been sent to the forge of Govnu to kill the smith. And she had let him go. The red-haired youth had found his welcome in the fiery forge, as always. Uh, make me a spear, he demanded, the ruddy flames lighting his eager smile. And Govnu set his hand to the hammer and the iron to the anvil. When the shape of the spear was sharp, Kretna cared, framed it with rivets and looked her, set it to the shaft and Crone took it, finished it with her blood-red mark, and she gave it to the red-haired youth. And this was the moment that Ruathorn made his choice. With a cry, he lifted the spear and let it fly. It struck the smith, struck him there in his own forge. It wounded him, but it did not fell him. 
Govnu plucked the spear from his own flesh and cast it once more. It struck Ruathorn full in the breast, struck him, and he fell, red in his own blood, and there in the forge the youth died. And Brig mourns for her son, who will not be dipped in the waters of the healing well. And the cadences of her keening are heard in both camps. Today we are taking another look at Brig, or Bridget, the pre-Christian mythical figure and the much-loved Irish saint of Kildare. Yeah, well, when we came to update our original podcast episode and listen through it, we felt it was just a little long mm. and a bit rambling. Yes. So we decided to re-record the whole thing. Yes, it seems simpler, all right. Our original views on Brig have not really changed significantly and we can include updates and links to more recent podcast episodes as we go. Yeah, the whole thing just gets easier, doesn't it? It does, really? yeah. Well, there's elements that we've covered in other episodes, so... Bridget is a hugely popular figure in Ireland, isn't she? Mm, absolutely. I was just thinking about how many schools I visit that are all named after St Bridget. Yes. <laughs> and you meet Bridget Wells all over the, over the country. Yeah. And, of course, her Saints Day... Which is Lawl of Regia, the 1st of February. Well, that's still regularly celebrated around the country. And it's surprising how much attendant folklore is still attached. Oh, yeah. Now, if you ask anyone about Bridget, that it, you'll find that it's generally assumed that her popularity in Ireland goes back to the pre-Christian period. Absolutely. And in more contemporary popular culture or in the popular imagination, her attributes are given as being a patroness of poetic inspiration, of healing, mm-hmm. which includes the healing wells, and smithcraft. So we better dig down and see what we can find. Yep. Now, I chose to begin with a story that, that can be found at the heart of the Moitura saga. Mm. Now, that's one of the earliest Irish sagas still extant. Yeah. And it seems the best place to search for the pre-Christian Bridget. Yeah. Now, we did a whole series on Moitura and we keep coming back to it because it is such a core story Mm. I think and the text itself while there are chunks in it that are early middle Irish particularly uh, the opening seven sections I think are lifted pretty much word for word from the Levergavala which is a later strand the core of the story and its language it's ninth century at the latest so it feels very early doesn't it it? really does and again we can go on about this for weeks and weeks and weeks which we sometimes have and an entire second series (laughs) exactly (laughs) so that's the source for our story anyway It's also the only story that's specifically about Brig I could find. Mm. Certainly the only mention of her son. Yeah, absolutely. If we just start by looking at Brig's role in Cath Magatidid, she is given as the daughter of the Dagda, and you would think that would make her quite significant. Mm -hmm. But in fact, this story of her keening for her lost son, it's her only appearance in this story. And more than that, it's her only appearance in the entire mythological cycle of tales. It's the only time we hear anything about Brig. Yeah, and perhaps even more surprisingly, there isn't even a mention of a pre-Christian Brig in the Metrical Dynhenicus. And that is quite remarkable. It is. everybody turns up. Oh, absolutely, yeah, sooner or later. <laughs> now, there are a few references within the Levergavola, which yeah, we yeah. already talked about, um, which is, if you like, a later strand than the strand that contains Moitura. We sometimes think of it as the Norman strand. Oh, yes, a yeah, bit. That's, yeah, that's yeah. a bit misleading. Well, but... we're, we're still working on our terminology for this one. In that later strand, she's sometimes given as the mother of the sons of Tyrann, for mm. example, but she doesn't play any part in that story. 
again, she's just a, a, a mother figure or a mm, part of their mm. genealogy, if you like. And all of the references to her seem to be kind of additions mm-hmm. to main stories and they can be contradictory as well. Occasionally she turns up as the mother of the doctor. Yes. <laughs> as well as the daughter of the doctor. Yes. Is, but you don't have to worry about that. It's, it's definitely a relationship between her and the doctor. Yeah. Also, the story of her in Moitura mm. is sometimes regarded as a side tale to the main battle, although we would disagree with that. Well, we would. And in fact, we find so often that those bits that are seen as diversions mm. or asides actually contain some of the most interesting stuff. And that brings us back to her main role in Moitura mm. to do with her son. Yeah. As I say, he doesn't appear anywhere anywhere else either, does he? Uh, no, he doesn't. And this little episode uh, that you told at the beginning, it's really his only walk-on part. Moitura is full of well-known characters like Gaivnu, uh the Smith, the, the Locata. The people he interacts with in the forge. Exactly. They're all established and well backed up aren't they oh they certainly are they have their own law texts so they're very much established patrons of these particular crafts and obviously well known to all uh, their audiences so Ruthorn seems to have been brought on just to have an effective death scene <laughs> I mean that's about it yes there is another aspect to this episode that might throw some light on Brig's particular significance in the story. Mm-hmm. And although she's Dedanan, Ruadon's father, who is Bresh, is of the Fovera. And so he's the son of the Fovera chieftain who's chosen to replace the Dedanan Nuada after Nuada loses his hand in the first battle of Moitura, which is the one they fought against the Firbolg. And so Ruadon is of mixed blood. He's of both peoples. And although it's given no specific focus in the storytelling, mm. it seems that Briggs' role is to become the conduit for the intended linking of the Tutua. Yes. The Dedanan and the Fovera. Kind of like Margaret of York and her marriage to Henry Tudor at the close of the Cousins' War. That's the War the, of the Roses. Yeah. Though I can't I'd equate Ruthorn with Henry VIII. <laughs> Except they were probably both red-headed. <laughs> Ruthorn is not the only one in this position. His background, his story is, as we pointed out elsewhere, a mirror image to Lug, of course, who mm. has a Fovera mother and a Daedanan father. And in fact, it was this distinction between loyalties to paternal or maternal kin that has been the main focus of most of the academic discussion of this episode. Uh, we discussed that quite a lot in series two, episode five. We didn't did, we? yes, yeah. And in other discussions around Maitura, we looked at this. Now, we've examined Ruadorn's story in some detail in that series two, episode five. Yeah, the four crafts. I also started with the story. Yeah. But I think for the sake of completeness that uh, we ought to briefly outline the story here. Yeah. So basically, Ruadorn's been sent by his father's people to spy on the technology of the enemy. Yes. First, Ruthorn reports back on the well set up by Dian Kecht, mm. the well which is able to heal all the wounded Adana warriors. Yes. And then after that, he's sent as a spy to go into the forge and yeah. find out why the weapons are so good. It's a bit of industrial espionage. And seeing one of the spears so expertly made by the craftsman, he rashly attempts to kill Govnu himself. Mm. And Govnu pulls the spear from his side and throws it back and kills Ruthorn. Yeah. And because of Ruthorn's report on the well, the Fovera have now filled it up with stones rendering it useless. Yes, yeah. And that's the irony, so powerfully expressed by Brieg, yeah. that Ruthorn cannot be revived. So in essence, this is the story. Yeah, yeah. And in, in some ways, that sense of the spy's own information having a backlash mm. against mm. him 
is it's very palpable once you think about it. I don't think it's particularly explicit in the telling in the saga. When we uh, when we were undertaking the reenactment of the mm. Battle of Moitura, that was such a moment, wasn't mm. it? When all the battle stops and you're focusing on this one scene of a yeah. grieving mother yeah. and everything for that moment is quiet. Yeah. It's a hiatus yes. in the story. Yeah. And I think it is in the storytelling as well. Yes. There is that moment of an in-breath yeah. for the audience to think about battle before mm. the real battle begins. Absolutely. So even in dramatic terms, mm. it has a very strong effect. Oh, it does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've referred to the attributes associated with the figure of Brig, the popular mm. figure yes. of Brig. Now, if this is our only story in the mythological cycle, can we find them reflected in the events there? Well, if we take those attributes that we've mentioned at the top of the episode here, well, through her son, through Ruadon, Brig is very loosely associated mm. with the forge. It's kind of loose, isn't it? It is, rather, yeah. And I'm afraid that in this story, she is definitely not associated with healing or wells. In fact, mm. her tragedy is directly connected with the destruction of a well of healing. Yes, yeah. And it's so tenuous to try and identify this story with Bridget Wells. Yeah, but yeah. it is a powerful story of loss and compassion. That hits yeah. me every time Absolutely. I read it. Absolutely, yeah. And it's at the heart of the telling of this great battle in which really numberless, as many as the stars in the sky, will die. But here we have this fundamental tragedy of war, which is a mother grieving and weeping over the death of her son. It also struck me that it seems that the more technological weapon development that takes place, yeah. the more mothers will grieve for their sons. Yeah. And that idea is expressed clearly in this story. I think so. Yeah. Although this, of course, may be a modern reflection. Well, I I think probably every generation feels as though the, the better weapons get, the more tragedy there's going to be. I, I don't think it's necessarily mm. completely modern. Or a modern interpretation, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But in a recent update in our revisit to Aravid, which is season five, episode, episode four, four, we did draw attention again to the connection of the themes in the Epic of Moitura. We've commented several times now that this overwhelming thrust, it's not one of a battle between enemies. It's really about these cyclical and ongoing need to regularly both protect and restore the fertility of the land. Yeah, every time we go back to look at Moitura, it becomes clear. Yes, it? it yeah, started yeah. off as this idea of the, the proto-script mm. with the cow as a form of holy grail. Yeah, yeah. But we've realised that even that was just... That's only the beginning. <laughs> yes, it's only scratching the surface yeah. of the story. And that this main theme of uh, the need to restore and maintain the order of the land mm. is presented over and over again in in lots of different ways. Mm. So the story of the rescue of the Glasgowan from the Fovera, that restores the fertility of cattle and health to its people. Mm. Just as the death and restoration of Miak in the form of green herbs and cereal crops offers a promise of health and well-being. Yeah. However, the story of Ruadorn seems to remind that the restoration of the land requires a cost to human life. Mm. There there are sacrifices that need to be made yeah. to maintain this. Now we have this theme 
of the life and death cycles in three ways, in terms of the livestock and then in terms of the crops and finally in human terms. And it's the last one that's such a deep tragedy. Okay. Now, one of the main roles of Brig in the Moitura story is, of course, to emphasise her position as the first woman to establish the practice of keening. Yeah. Now, this is a lot more than just uncontrolled weeping, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is. Although the text does say that she begins with shrieking and ends with wailing. But keening is something more particular in the Irish tradition. And in fact, what's being described is a poetic form, which is the quina, which is mm -hmm. where we get the English word keening from. And quina can literally be translated as wailing or crying, but it's a very specific and highly developed poetic form. And what's more, it comes right down through the ages to historical examples in the 18th century. Yeah, that's a long time. It is, rather. It's, it's a couple of millennia, let's say. At least one millennium, put it that way. And in the 18th century, we get the very famous poem, the Queen of Arty Lerig, which is the lament for Art O'Leary. Now, this was composed by Evelyn Dove E. Connell, and she was, in fact, Daniel O'Connell's aunt. So yeah, that, that's yeah. how kind of close we are historically here. And she was born in around 1743. Now, Art O'Leary died around 1773, mm -hmm. and he was her second husband. She married him very much against the wishes of her family. It was this great romantic tale. Nice, good story. And the poem is gorgeous. It is really heart-wrenchingly beautiful. But it is a documented historical example of a lament poem being composed. Now, was she a professional poet? Absolutely. And there's evidence to show that these laments, this specific poetic form were composed by a class of professional women poets who were highly valued and their only role, their only job, was creating keening poetry over the dead. So what was so special about this particular form of poetry? Well, it was highly structured, yeah. as a lot of the Irish classical verse was. And these women would have had very long training. We find from the medieval sources that there was a 12-year curriculum to become a professional poet and yes. there's no reason to think it's any less. That's and a long training. Yes, it? it certainly is. That's your, your undergrad, your master's, mm -hmm. your doctor's and probably a bit of postdoc in there as well. What's really important to appreciate is the poems were produced extempore on the spot. So they were improvised. They were a very skilled improvisation. And the fact that this extempore lament for Artillera was later recorded shows us the quality of the poetry yeah, itself yeah. because to produce that structure on the spot makes the poem more memorable. And come to think of it, we know from Shinnan's search for the highest skill of poetry, mm. the one great skill she didn't have mm. and went searching for was that of extemporised work. Yeah. It was considered to be one of the greatest accomplishments a poet could achieve. Exactly. The, the one that truly linked him or her with the other world. Yes, yeah, that emboss, the emboss for us and that inspiration which illuminates. But women keening is very common across the world and in many cultures. Yeah, ululation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It certainly is. It's it's always been one of the prime role of women to mm. be the ones to cry over the dead. To express in that, yeah. any culture. Mm. I was just thinking about in ancient Greek. Mm. There it was deliberately connected with the cry of the owl. Yeah. And as far as I know, in ancient Greek, it was etymologically linked 
with the word for owl. That's really cool. It's, I, I like can't that. remember it exactly, <laughs> but it comes down, I know, to the French ibu. Yes. Which is, you can hear the ululation. Exactly. Well, also just ulu for ulu. the ululation and the owl. Mm, it you is know, the you sound can hear the, the sound, yeah, yeah. So it goes back to earliest times. It's connected with Demeter and the loss of Persephone, mm. the Eleusinian mysteries, yeah. which are among the oldest in the world. Mm. The, the, I was in Eleusis uh, actually just last, last year, year yeah. <laughs> and you can see that that site begins in Mycenaean times mm. and continues right down into late Roman, early Christian times. Yeah. It was considered important mm. for all that time. Mm. It's a pity it doesn't seem to be rated so today. <laughs> now, while you were talking about the Lament for Arto Leary, something else struck mm. me. Wouldn't it eventually only be the most high-status families who could afford the attentions of a professional poet? Mm. Well, I'd say but not even just the 18th century, all the way back. The better your class, the better your poetry. So the high-status people would be the, might be the only ones who could have their dear departed professionally keyed. Mm. Now, could this not be the origin of the Banshee story? <laughs> Are we seeing Brig as the first Banshee? Well... <laughs> You might actually be closer to the mark than you think. <laughs> it may—it sort of sounds ridiculous to us now in terms of that banshee appearing in, in modern folklore. But, of course, banshee just means woman of the she, yeah. And what that implies to me is a noble otherworld woman who will come over to this world to lament a member of a, a particularly important family who has died. And that would be the greatest honour, the greatest it status. It your status good and proper, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Yeah. <laughs> and as we've commented many times before, the role of the poet was to stand on the borders of territories either physical tours and kingdoms or between the worlds and keeping those doorways open and liaising or maintaining particularly that rightness, the truth, the yeah. chord. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a case for calling Brig a Banshee. I'd say so. <laughs> well, this is all very interesting. Yeah. But so far, I do feel that we've been able to confirm very little of the familiar image of Bridget from the mythological story strata. Yeah. Now, often we're able to uncover unexpectedly rich seams of information if we look at the root meanings of the names. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, this has happened over and over again. It so does, come yeah. on, can we find out anything more about Bridget by examining the root meanings of her name? Right. Well, the root of Brig uh, or Mrig, it seems to represent a hill or a high place and by extension a territory, particularly a well-defended territory. The name also shares a root then with Brug and with Brugge, which is the Hospitaller. Mm -hmm. And so that is effectively a wealthy territory, a, a fertile territory. So when you say a high place, do you mean this literally, as in a hill? Well, primarily, yes. And we do find it in that sense, in place names, like down the road, Breleth, which, of course, is Arda Hill in Longford. Oh, home, one of my favourite legend haunted hills. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but in, quite interestingly, I think, anyway, in that case, Bre does refer to a hill, it's Breleth, the Grey Hill or the Hill of Grey. But in the Metrical Dynienicus, it's given as the name of a person. Okay, so then what may have begun as a description of the physical environment mm. eventually might have come to include its metaphorical qualities and mythical significance as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, with that sort of metaphorical extension, we do find in many languages, if not most, that there is a close connection between the concrete sense mm. of high, as in an elevated place. High hill. Yeah. And the metaphorical use, which refers either to status or even to morality, getting on your high horse. 
And there are, in fact, schools of thought to say that Bridget means the exalted one. But personally, I feel that that is a subsequent meaning, that there's a root which is more concrete than that. So I get your point. It could have started off, I suppose, referring to Brig, referring to our wealthy, safe, upland, fertile territory, and then came to mean the hill of our exalted ancestress or the land of our exalted ancestress. Yeah. And meaning both at the same time. Exactly. And that makes that that's perfectly okay. Mm. I mean, Far more than one thing at once. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Now, there was a well-documented Celtic ancestress or goddess called Brigantia. Mm. Uh, I mean, for instance, she gave her name to a major tribe known as the Brigantes. Yeah. And they were to be found particularly in the north of England, but they did become widely spread. Yes. Now, I mean, yeah, and the continent, but I'm talking specifically about England Mm. here. Now, the Ptolemy's map, which dates to about 150 AD, does include Ireland as well. Mm. And there is a region that's dominated by the Brigantes in the southeast, quite a small region. But how much we can trust this map, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's always a bit tricky, particularly the classical sources are unlikely to have had direct contact with Ireland at the time. It's a pretty good map. Yeah, it is extensive. I think... It's interesting that labelling of Brigantes in Ireland is only that one area of Leinster. Over in the East Coast, there's been a longer tradition of connection, commerce and mm-hmm. toing and froing with England and Wales mm-hmm. and by extension then the continent. And this is the only reference to a Brigantia in Ireland as Cer- far as Yeah, we know. certainly in terms of that a tribal name, that's its only real uh, appearance. Now there's one thing that struck me if the word brig primarily means a hill it doesn't explain the occasional river that carries her name <laughs> or its name. After yeah. all you can't call a river a hill can you? Uh, well <laughs> not literally although those do seem to occur mostly in in Britain on the island of Britain and on the continent. I haven't been able to come up with any Irish river name which has that brig or mrug as a root but the rivers may well be named after the people and their territory. I think you're probably right. After all, with the Liffey River, and mm-hmm. um, the the old name for the Liffey is the Ruhrthek, which is the the reaching river, the stretching river. And Liffa was the plain around it, mm-hmm. so it mm-hmm. became the river of the plain of Liffa. Mm. And there's plenty of places are named after the people who lived there. Absolutely, that, yeah. That's, yeah I, I'm sure you're right. Mm. And in fact, I can back that up because I grew up in Wilsdon in outer London, which is bordered by the River Brent. Mm. This is said to have been named after the Brigantes yeah. or Brigantia. Now, there might be a further connection with our elusive brig here hmm. because Wilsdon means the well at the foot of the hill. Yeah. And in Wilsdon, there's a very old parish church founded in the 10th century, but on an older site. Mm. And there's a well in the crypt from very early medieval times, right up until the Reformation in the 16th century, there was a famous shrine there to the Black Virgin of Wilsdon. Mm-hmm. Now, it's one of the few Black Virgin sites, so it's very yes, interesting yeah, yeah. anyway. That, they're nearly all extremely ancient. Yeah, yeah. Now, it was a famous pilgrimage site. I hadn't realised quite how famous it was until I read that, in fact, in its day, in medieval times, it was as famous as the great pilgrimage site of Walsingham. Right. Possibly second only to Canterbury. Mm. So a really important site. Mm. And indeed, the pilgrimage became so popular that it was eventually, it had to be ruthlessly stamped out. (laughs) By the time you get to the Commonwealth in the 17th century and the Puritans and so forth, it had become so popular that sermons were being preached against the place, accusing the pilgrimage of drunkenness and the usual complaints of general debauchery. Well, that just sounds like an Irish oinuk then, really, (laughs) doesn't it? Now, there's one sermon 
recorded that ranted, Will God not say to you on the day of judgment that thou hast been to Wilsden? No, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad, but it's not that bad. <laughs> that made me laugh. Yeah. Now, Cromwell even stabled his horses inside the church. Mm. And the, 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 there's all sorts of marks that can still be seen and musket balls and doors and yeah. so forth. Now, the shrine with its ancient statue were destroyed, utterly destroyed, yeah. and the church was fined in perpetuity. And the fine was still being paid in 1902. Till <laughs> someone said, what's this here? Yeah. yeah. Why are we still getting a penny a year from these people? I think it was the other way. Why are we still oh, paying this yeah, money? Yeah. <laughs> but since the 1970s, the shrine has been restored and a new statue is carved mm. and water from the well is now available again and it's supposed to be producing cures. Of course. Now, whether this story has anything to do with Brig or not, I, I have not a clue, but it is a good story. Yes, it is. Well, the Continental Celts certainly had a lot of time for Brig. Her name turns up in so many place names across the continent, whether it's Brittany, there's places in Austria and Portugal. But it's not only in place names. There are references, inscriptions and occasionally statues of a Brig mm -hmm. figure mm -hmm. as a, a personage. She seems to have been recognised or at least associated by the Romans with Minerva, who was concerned with wisdom primarily, but also with trade and the arts, and also then associated with victory. Mm. So here's this helmeted Minerva Brig figure, patroness of the widespread Brigantes peoples, who eventually gives her name to Britain, to Brittany, and closely identified with an image of prosperous, wealthy territory. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I can't help but feel that this recognisable Romano-British Minerva Brig is familiar to anybody brought up in England. Yes. Uh, yeah, this is Britannia. Yeah. Just as she used to appear on the old penny yeah. as a personification of empire. Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, it looks like we've gone seeking break in the mythological story strata and in the remnants of a pan-Celtic goddess. Mm. And all we've ended up with is a proto-Banshee and a proto-Britannia personification of victory. Yes. <laughs> it is somewhat a long way from the popular idea of an Irish pre-Christian Bridget figure who is dedicated to healing poetry and smithcraft. Okay. Well, I don't find this terribly surprising. Brigantia seems to have been quite core, I would say, to the Celtic peoples across Europe. And Ireland wasn't part of that empire. No Celtic tribes there in There weren't, no. I mean, there might have been some small settlements of foreigners, uh, particularly perhaps British foreigners, right along the East Coast. But that's as much as you can yeah, say. This is surprising. We have said this before. We have. And I think that when we first did this episode, that's where we felt like we really had to say this and keep saying it, which we have done. Now, around the turn of the first millennium, or perhaps a little earlier than that, there was a Celtic empire which did really cover the continent of Europe, mm, certainly mm. from Central Europe. Underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, it's it was really quite incredible and, and definitely put the Roman Empire under pressure. It was sort of Central Europe right the way across Gaul, of course, and then beyond into what's now Britain. This is the civilization that is generally connected with, for example, the Latin style of Celtic art. Mm -hmm. What people think about Celtic art. Exactly. And they're also the Celtoi that the Greeks and Romans interacted with. And we're really quite a threat 
to them, which is why they, they got written about. about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like Pausanias, who was, I always think of him as the first tourist. Yes, yes. Or Caesar, who wrote a lot about the uh, Keltoi, the, yeah. the, the Gauls. And he had to do this because he had to justify his invasion of Gaul and England to the Senate because he was in danger of being arrested and possibly executed. Yes, yeah. But it's now becoming, I think, more widely accepted that there wasn't a Celtic invasion in Ireland. There were of course, trade and influence and particularly cultural and artistic mm-hmm. influence, but it wasn't a wholesale incursion. I think that's quite important. It really is important to understand that, I think. Now, this Latin style of art becomes very distinctively recognised in Irish work. Mm. Now, that's all those wonderful kind of organic plant-like curvilinear designs like you find on the wonderful first century Breuter collar uh, or even on the Turo stone Mm. but it's not actually identical to the continental style it differs from the work of the same period Mm -hmm. that was coming Mm. out of Europe so that suggests to me much more that cultural borrowing that Mm. influence Mm. seeing something beautiful and wanting to borrow those ideas and make it your own And in fact, if we follow the trail of our Brigantes, if Brig, the name Brig, applies to a high place, this is actually kind of nice because it connects to the hill forts, the defensive settlement patterns. The wealthy high places. The wealthy high places. And they're found on mainland Britain and across Europe. I think that'd be quite appropriate for Brigantes Mm -hmm. because those are the settlements that are really fundamentally characteristic of Celtic settlement. of Hillforts. Yeah, of that civilization. They were these big defensive meeting places on top of the But they were defensive and I Mm. think that that's one of the things we really don't find here. We don't find that kind of defensive hilltop settlement in our... Now these hillforts, they're nothing like our rats, are they? They really aren't. I mean, for one thing, our rats are often found in valleys. They're small, they're not defensive, they're homesteads. Yeah, the fact that rath sometimes is translated as fort is really misleading. It is rather, yeah, yeah. But we really don't find that archetypally Celtic pattern of settlement in Ireland and we also don't have these huge inhumation cemeteries Mm. that you find again across Britain and into the continent and those are in archaeological terms those are the markers of Celtic settlement. Iron Age settlements. Yeah. Yeah. Now the Iron Age of course is problematic in Ireland as we've commented on Mm. on many occasions we have very, relatively few finds, relatively few sites, very few sites, and there's just a, a dearth of archaeological evidence. There's one thing I came across, recent mm. environmental investigation around that before, that's our mucker, yeah. has suggested land use changes in this period, mm. 500 BCE to 500 CE approximately. Yeah. And these land use changes imply a greatly reduced population Mm, mm. now this is interesting whether it was replicated around the country well i have no idea it's Mm. difficult to tell but alan mucker was a very important site yes and And it's one of our few iron age sites as well yeah it it feels as if it was a time where the population was somewhat under pressure Mm in Ireland anyway there's a sense of nostalgia about the sites we have Mm -hmm. something of a sort of golden lost age Mm -hmm. and I get the feeling it might have encouraged retention and embellishment of a body of heroic 
oral stories in yeah. the same way because so many of our stories feel as though they are trying to capture something of yes. that age as the 19th century tried to capture the medieval exactly yes and and something that's lost and mm. idealized and i mean the excavation of Evelmacher has revealed some like really bizarre and unusual evidence that could in fact support that now we have discussed this often and particularly recently when we revisited Marca in episode two of this series mm-hmm. and there's a supporting article about that on the website and we'll put up links to those as usual. Now one more question I have to ask before we return to Bridget herself. What about the Irish language? I mean that's a Celtic language. Yeah it's part of a language group that covered much of Europe, especially the islands to the west of Europe. So mm-hmm. the Celtic languages, you've got Gaulish, Cornish, British, Welsh, Scots, mm. Irish, Manx. And they're called Celtic languages because they appear in this part of the continent. Now, even within that, though, Irish split off from the Brythonic languages really very early on. Mm-hmm. There's the word order in Irish is I think it's the only verb first language in Europe. Uh, so something syntactically so different is interesting in itself. And it is quite different from the languages found in those places where there would be Celtic settlements like Gaul and Britain mm-hmm. particularly. So I suppose to sum it up, what we've been saying was that there's there was great cultural influence from the continent Mm. but the idea of the Celtic invasions is definitely if least exaggerated yes to put it mildly yeah Iron Age Ireland is separate Mm. and doesn't seem to have absorbed the figure of Brigantia not at that period certainly so we're not much closer to finding the evidence of our familiar Bridget figure in a pre-Christian Irish context yeah Right, perhaps we'll do better with St. Bridget. Now, I'm not too hot on hagiography. Well, neither am I, but let's see what we can do. St. Bridget has been a much-loved figure for centuries Mm. and has accrued numbers of stories and a good deal of folklore and folk practice. So what aspects do we think are the most associated with our ever-popular St. Bridget? Well, let's start with the flame. Now, as far as I'm aware... I haven't found any stories or folklore linking St. Bridget directly to the forge. But what is quite central to her cult was this tending of a sacred flame. It was kept lit by 19 nuns and Mm -hmm. the 20th night was given for Bridget herself. After her time. Exactly, yes. In terms of her physical existence. Yes. There was one. Yeah. Now, there is a story as well of a young Bridget attempting to give away her father's valuable sword in order to allow a poor person to eat. But this isn't really about the forging of the metal itself. It's more about the Christian charity, the generosity of Mm. Bridget. And her sense of hospitality. The hospitality, exactly, yeah. I I think the flame really represents, as it were, the hearth fire, yeah. the central fire. And as we found in the adventures of Nero, you remember Corks Corks carrying for beginners. beginners. Yes, and the cow and the time machine, don't forget that. Okay, well there <laughs> the hearth fire might be smoured at night for safety, but the embers were always kept viable, ready to breathe back into flame when needed. Yes, well the living hearth fire was this really crucial protection. And 
this is a practical thing. In the days before firelighters, it was only common sense not to let the fire yes, go out. Yes, absolutely. Also, Bridget's cult has echoes of the Roman cult of the Vestal Virgins. Yeah. It, it's kind of close mm. in many ways. We're not suggesting direct connection. No. Though, but... It is similar, that there was a very ancient cult that was energetically retained in Rome throughout the entire Roman period. Mm. Like the cult of Demeter yeah. at Eleusis. Yes. It has a very, very long shelf life. That yeah, one. yeah. So did the, the Bridget cult. Geraldus yeah. Cambrensis, he was around in the 12th century, wasn't yeah. he? He's yeah. not always to be trusted, but he's got some great stories. He does, yes. Including the first Irish werewolf. Well, yes. <laughs> but he reported on the fire of St Bridget, described what it was like, mm. and said it was still burning in Kildare and being tended by nuns, and that was in the 12th century. Yes. And we, as far as everyone knows, it went on up until about the time of the English Reformation. Yeah, yeah. Went with the rest of the stuff about that time. Oh, uh, yeah, the, the Cultural Revolution, as Michael Wood describes it. That's right, yeah. the British Cultural Revolution, which they imposed on Ireland as well. Yeah. Anyhow, this business with the hearth fire, it does really connect to that sense of hospitality, the warmth of the welcome, if you like, mm -hmm. and the generosity, which are very core virtues with St. Bridget. And in a way, it is also the Christian ideal of charity. Mm. But it's also the pre-Christian uh, hospitality focus, intense focus on hospitality. Absolutely, yeah. And there's loads of stories around Saint Bridget which show this, which are about her sort of multiplying, creating abundance in produce and particularly food and drink and the sort of agricultural produce wool. of wool, meat, milk, all these things apples, that she can, yeah, for some reason, apples. yeah, that she can either make come back after they've been finished or she's able to divide a portion and each is still as big as the original. But there's one that I really love, which is a poem attributed to her where she's expressing her dearest heart's wish for her next life in heaven. And what she wants to do is run an alehouse in heaven. It's, that's so brilliant, that every saint who ever lived would come to her and she could give them this foaming meat. It's gorgeous. Is this a Christian Valhalla? <laughs> It's an Irish heaven, I think, is what it is. Yeah, it is. It's lovely. It is It is a beautiful one. Yeah. There's also the really well-known story, a story known to every national school child in Ireland, of how she asked for as much land as her cloak could cover. Yeah. And how once she laid her cloak on the ground, it grew and grew until it covered enough land to, yeah. to create her monastic foundation. Yes. And now that is the area known as the Curra in Kildare, which is an army training camp and a race course for, what, for <laughs> better or worse. Time. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, there's one lesser known story that may indicate she was believed to be directly associated with fertility. Mm. And I think this one's quite interesting. Mm. There is a story of one of her nuns who turned out to get pregnant. And she went and told St. Bridget, and St. Bridget said, don't worry, dear, we'll sort this out. Mm. And Bridget is said to have caused the fetus to be reabsorbed yeah. without pain or sin. Yeah. Somebody I read somewhere said, is this the first abortion? Yeah. But it's, it's very clear that Bridget was compassionate. Uh, and, yes, absolutely. And particularly to women. Yeah. And it is an interesting story. It is, most definitely. Now, you can't really talk about St. Bridget without the fecundity and overabundance of healing wells <laughs> in yeah, the country. And places named after her. Apparently there are 43 Kilbrides mm. in Ireland. Which would and, be Kelbrida, the Church of Bridget. And there's also a huge number of wells attributed to Bridget. Yes. Now, even my own local parish is called Kiltabrid. Yeah, which is Kiltabrida, which is the Church of Bridget's well. Yeah. Mm. Now... 
The Holy Wells, I think, would make a podcast episode of their own. Mm. I think we've mentioned them lots of times, yes. haven't we? Yeah. But maybe a description of a local healing well would represent the others. Mm. And it gives you a chance to talk about your favourite well, doesn't yes. it? Yes, it does, of course. And this is St Lasser's Well, which is up just beyond Kiju on the Ballyfarnan Road. It's not a St Bridget Well per se, but it does share some elements with some of the Bridgetine sites and I think it's a, it's a great example of a holy well mm. that is still very much alive and tended and used today. St. Lasser was supposed to have been the daughter of St. Ronan. Ronan because that's the parish up there is Kilronan and the well is just opposite it. Its main things in it are that it's a healing well for all kinds of ailments, there's a wonderful little downward spiralling path there's to a it. There's on stone as well. Yeah, there's all all these different elements to the whole site. It's right beside the lake. It's right beside Loch Mila. If you go, if you visit there today, as well as being very well tended and planted and manicured, there's a stone shelf right beside the well where you'll find people's offerings. Mm. Uh, you'll find their Ventolin inhalers. You'll find biros. You'll find baby shoes. Mm. You know, obviously... Hospital appointment card, yeah. or anything really. Yeah, things that people yeah. want to go well for whatever reason. And you'll find bits and bobs tied to any old bit of tree and bush. There's supposed to be some magic mud, Lasser's magic mud. Sorry, that's a slightly Chelmsford one, two, three <laughs> joke. But yes, there is supposed to be a bank with scraped up mud that is good for making poultices. And then there's this big stone table which is probably quite a late addition but is also obviously very popular it's just a huge stone slab with this very round balloon stone on the top of it and loads of little indentations in the top it's supposed to be that if you turn it clockwise you can get a blessing and if you turn it anti-clockwise you can send a curse i've heard that said i've never seen it written yeah i know and this is the thing and it's still Occasionally, the stone isn't there. Yeah, it just gets borrowed yeah. <laughs> and then returned, of course. Very importantly, returned. And the other wonderful thing is that if you, supposedly, if you crawl around the legs of this stone table in a figure of eight, it's good for backache. <laughs> now, in more recent years, there's some of that sort of graveyard matting has been put down under the legs so that you don't get your knees too muddy. Mm, so it's still used. Yeah, and in fact, I've been there around her pattern day, which is the patron day originally but the pattern day is when there's a mass said that's at, in at september the local well it is it's with it's the closest sunday to the 8th of september mm-hmm. is her pattern there and i've been there around that time and seen people pull up in their cars go and crawl around the legs of the table mm. get back in their cars and go off again mm. so if you want an example of traditions and practices especially that just are too important to people mm. to let go it's, it's you, a good example it's a really good example no there mm. used to be a huge ash tree yes and it had coins hammered into yeah. it which have been there for centuries yeah yeah but there was a great storm and i think the metal in the coins had damaged and uh, weakened the tree, the tree yeah so yeah. they had to take the tree down yes but i think i've seen various little offerings around the stump of the tree because mm. it was beautiful it sort of grew up and overshadowed the pool that, that, of the well that, well I think it's a good example because it had a bit of everything exactly yeah but there is a more direct connection to Bridget isn't there there is and I really like this story now I, I credit it to Mary Condren with her book The Serpent and the Goddess which again read with as much salt as you like but she's gathered some very interesting mm. stories such as this one which is of St Bridget coming for a visit to St Lasser 
St Lasser slaughtered her last ewe in order to provide the meal. Now, just after Bridget sits down at the dinner table, who should come knocking on the door? Only St Patrick. And now here's Lasser. <laughs> it's a long meal. I know, Most yeah. lived at least 100 years apart. Oh, easily, yes. Well, well these are saints now. They can perform miracles yeah. and obviously time travel as well. But now there's St. Patrick at Lasser's house and she has no food to offer him. And so Bridget does that thing of dividing and multiplying her meal mm-hmm. so that Lasser doesn't lose face and doesn't breach hospitality, of course. And in gratitude for this saving of face, Lasser gives Bridget her church as in her own order Mm. of women her own monastic community and that includes their herd of sheep Mm. and this I find interesting that there's something there with the sheep and the tending of sheep and in many many cultures women often run dairies and textile production Mm. on a mixed farm again it's to do with the fertility of the sheep it it? is the multiplicity yes there's one more thing is the meaning of lassa exactly she's a flame just a, a fire of flame and we've just been talking about St. Bridget and the tending of this flame. So you've got that, again, that coming together of the image of the flame and the well. So in this obscure saint, mm. you've really got an image of everything that makes up that uh, idea of the Bridget well. Yes, but also I think it is so emblematic of all these mixed in stories of saints interacting with each other in all these little local sites and the living traditions and patterns that go along with those. Mm. I think it's got a bit of everything and it's it's a beautiful place. It's very much used. Yeah, absolutely. It is gorgeous. There's beautiful deciduous wood right beside it there on the and of course I, I do have to say that the grave of Turlo and Carolyn is right opposite absolutely in the Kilronan churchyard so yeah this is a tourist plug for Kiju <laughs> even if they say they're Roscommon they're honorary Leitrim <laughs> it's not far away no there is so. an article St Lasser and her well with yeah. pictures available on the, web- on the website yeah now I did mention before the wonderful poem that's attributed to her about this alehouse in heaven that she wants to run and there are a good few poems which are said to be written by St Bridget. That's not so unusual. There are also poems attributed to St Patrick and Cullum Kill. I mean Patrick is attributed to the the Lurica otherwise known as the Deer's Mm. Cry which is still sung in masses all over Ireland and of course Cullum Kill has some of those wonderful ones like the sea blue eye that looks back to Mm, Ireland mm. so it's not terribly unusual but there are poems to her and poems that are said Mm. to be by her as well within the literature yeah you know she comes across as a a woman of power Mm. whose roles are to guide teach adjudicate very much the same roles that were given to the poet even the king's poet yeah now one of those early hagiographies describes her of a, a bonne filler yeah and though she refused marriage herself, that same hagiography tells tells that her father promised her in marriage to a poet. Yeah, so that probably gives us an indication about the class, the particular class and status that she is supposed to have come from. Now, when we're looking at hagiographies, there's always this problem of trying to establish any historical identity mm of a person who may have founded a monastic settlement to Kildare. That's completely unknown. Yeah, there's just, there's no way really to come down one side or another on the historical side of something like that. Evidence on historicity, zero. I know, Mm. I know. And I'm not sure how valuable it is to try and pick that Mm. apart, to be honest with you. Now, those hagiographies, there's a couple of 
the early ones, which are from about the ninth century, there's the Bethu Brigte, and then there's they're nearly exactly the same title. The other one is Betha Brigte, I think, and I think one is Latin, one is Irish, but don't hold me to that. But the earliest ones, written 9th century, she's supposed to have lived 6th or 7th century. So there's a gap of 150 to 200 years between any historical personage or indeed between the establishment of the monastery and the earliest texts that describe her life or her stories. And everything else that we have comes from all this very rich folklore, later Mm. folk practice. Mm. And that, of course, doesn't get recorded until after the 17th century and probably a lot of it is 18th and 19th century. A lot of it, it does bear echoes to the textual record mm. or, but again it's, there's just so much of it and so little of what we would now consider history to base mm. that on. As far as I know one of the earliest lives of St Bridget was written by somebody called Cogitosis. Mm. I can hardly say the name, <laughs> who was supposed to be at that time Bishop of Kildare. Yes. Now, it's said that the life was written in the Book of Kildare, which has been long lost. Mm. But even that was probably written around 200 years after Bridget was said to have lived. Exactly, yeah. And we always have this problem with those early texts, of course. And worth remembering that this was a Bishop of Kildare whose patron saint was Bridget writing the life. There are versions that give Bridget's background as being the child of well-off early Christian parents. But I think the better known ones Mm -hmm. have her mother as a slave, often a Christian convert or a Christian slave, who is sold by some powerful non-Christian chieftain to a druid who's called Dovthach before Bridget's birth. Dovthach seems to be the most common name given Mm -hmm. for her father and sometimes he's described like that as a druid or a chieftain. And the druid would give him a connection with the poet class anyway. Yes, it would. Now she was born at Fochat, wasn't she? Yeah, that's what's given as her birthplace and certainly they say that in Fochat. It's an interesting place with a lot of strange stones. Yes. There's a heel stone and a waist stone and a head stone and Mm. a hoof stone. Yeah, yeah. I went to visit there about 25 years ago Mm. or more. Now, her other main well site, of course, is in Kildare itself. And there's two wells. There's the wayside well beside the Botanic Gardens, uh, which is on a main road in Kildare. And then there's her garden well, which is about a couple of kilometres away. But also in the town itself, you will find an order, the Brigidine Sisters. They're very much in what you might think of as the Celtic Christian tradition. Mm. They're extraordinary women. Absolutely extraordinary. And they do have a big festival around Law of Regia around the beginning of February. And it's well worth a visit. One of the things I like is that they keep what they call their perpetual flame in the shape of a little candle in their living room. But back in 2009, they managed to get a monumental gas-powered flame in the main street of Kildare. It is kind of like a triangle at the main crossroads. And that's very much like the amnesty flame in Dublin. Mm. It was launched as part of their annual celebration, which includes an AFRI Action from Ireland conference on social justice Mm. and international development. So they're really out there doing real work. All I can say is I have the greatest admiration Mm. for them. And the cult of Bridget, as it were, is doing important work today. Yeah, and it's, it's not only just this kind of repetition of practices. I think they really engage with the ideals that are associated mm. with St. Bridget. In a relevant way for the 21st century. Exactly. I suppose we ought to go back to this idea. Have we got any further in linking up this rather nebulous mm. pre-Christian brig yeah. with our obviously 
established Christian Bridget. Yes. I'm still bothered about it. Mm. In preparing for this podcast, I deliberately went and searched for Bridget sites on the web just, just to see what was there. And the trouble was that page after page gave me the same information. Yeah. She was the widely known Celtic fire goddess Breeze. Yeah. Or the Celtic goddess of fertility. Yes. Now, <laughs> any pages that took the trouble to reference a story of of Brig yeah. only came up with the death of Ruathorn. Yeah. Or possibly reference Cormac's glossary. Yeah. Which we'll come to in a minute. We certainly will. <laughs> that was about it. The other thing, of course, is that justifiably they all linked her to the pre-Christian festival of Imbolc. Yes, which is, of course, February the 1st, which we've already said is Lord of Regis, so it's definitely associated with Saint Bridget. But it was Imbolc before. It certainly was, and it was one of the four what are known as cross-quarter days. They're the agricultural quarters of the year that mark Mm -hmm. the beginning of seasons rather than the solar equinoxes and solstices, Mm -hmm. which are much more to do with the lengths of days and daylight. Mm. With the these cross-quarter days, they're much more about when you're doing things in a rural context. So you've got in bulk, which is the 1st of February. The start of the spring. Absolutely, yeah. Whatever the weather and the people birds might know say, it. the birds bloody do know it. Yeah, so in bulk, beginning of spring, <laughs> people... Brilliant freezing cold raining but the birds all start shouting and poking sticks down my chimney (laughs) at the beginning of february (laughs) yeah and sometimes a bit before so yeah then you've got uh beltona which is the beginning of summer beginning of may still cold then yeah but (laughs) it is when things are starting to put on a growth spurt that's what you can see you can and blossom is absolutely is beginning yeah that's all to come apple blossom oh yes and a a frost in may is a very dangerous and sad thing yeah absolutely that can do the whole crop for the summer. Lunasa is the beginning of the harvest. That's the beginning of August. Oh, people hate hate it when you tell them that. Actually, the first of August is the beginning of autumn. Of course it is. Of course, <laughs> but it's the it's the, the the ripeness of the summer. Exactly. And what's more, if you're a modern Irish speaker, it's obvious because September is Manfor, which is middle of autumn, and October is Terrafor, which is end of autumn so it's it's all laid out there for us in the Irish calendar and then of course you get Samhain which is the beginning of winter mm. at uh, Halloween beginning of no- end of October beginning of where you November. have the coming of the darkness yeah. and you suddenly have a problem going and doing things in the evening yes yeah well especially with all this mucking about with the clocks which yeah. drives me bonkers so although it's not so cold Mm. At the beginning of winter. Yeah. The real cold starts actually closer to the beginning of spring. Absolutely, yeah. But it's light. It's to do with light times you can work. Yeah. It's has a practical function Absolutely. in the agrarian calendar. That's what it's all about. And in bulk is all about time to put the seeds in the ground. So these are very practical things if you are trying to grow any food. Yeah. And certainly if you're living a rural lifestyle, these are the kinds of things you're very aware of. So would you say that there's actually scanned evidence to suggest that the celebration of Imbolc was originally just the festival of a goddess breach? I'd say there's... I can't think of any evidence. I think that people have got a little bit misled because Lunasa is one of the, the four. And mm-hmm. it's got the name of Lou in there or love again I'm afraid we when we were looking at Lou yeah we did say that in many ways that he in Ireland mm-hmm. I hate to say it but he's a shiny foreigner yeah yeah I mean he's early yes but he's not indigenous yeah but I think that because of that people have stretched things to try and find a bale that, that for the Beltana and then not there. 
even worse, the Sam in Samhain. Not there. <laughs> well, no. The only Samhain you can find is a red-headed boy who holds the... The Glasgowan. The Glasgowan. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's just, there's no divinity there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, they, these are much more about the, the way that people act and the things that people do. They rather than not practical people. Yeah, rather than any celebration of a, a specific... Mm deity. Gilbert, they were the people of many crafts. Yeah, exactly. Did things. They yeah. were interested in things that happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As Finn once said, the mm. music of what happens is the most beautiful music in yeah, the world. Yeah. I, I know it's probably quite a late quote. I just think it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So that idea of a date being primary, a celebration dedicated to a specific god or goddess, mm. I feel is rather more classical than Irish. Oh, yeah. Although I am very aware that saints' days were assigned in the Christian calendar by the church from extremely early on. Oh, yeah. And even here, the some of the earliest Irish Christian writings that we have are things like the Fáilire, which is translated usually as martyrology, but kind of means festival calendar, where uh, Oingus Caelá Day wrote a stanza for every day of the year mm. telling us which saint is to be celebrated on that day. Mm. And you've got this strange mixture of the pre-Christian and the Christian mm. working together so naturally. Exactly. The, the, the monks who wrote our greatest stories mm. up, as it were, they didn't mind. No, exactly. Exactly. So it was all of synthesis and a yeah. blend. All of which is to say that you can't necessarily extrapolate a pre-Christian goddess Brig from the traditions associated with Saint Bridget, even if those traditions have pre-Christian roots, mm-hmm. in per- particularly in terms of their practice. But nevertheless, nowadays, Imbolc has become very much associated with Saint Bridget. Oh, absolutely, and inevitably. Now, in terms of the name of the festival itself, Imbolc, there's a couple of different etymologies for it. One of them is that it has to do with Oinelch, which would be sheep milk. So mm. the time of sheep lactating. And certainly it's when you're starting to gear up for lambing season. The other one would be Imbolg, which would just mean in the belly. And some when of the said, lambs are still in the belly, it's exactly. about to be born. Yeah. And also the seeds are in the ground. Very practical. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose the two best known customs that exist still today are the Bridget's Mantle and the Bridget's Cross. Ah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And these are still, again, they're done in national schools. Mm. And you'll find Celtic Christians and neo-pagans alike uh, engaging in these. And they're great fun. The Bridget's Cross is perhaps the best known. known. And certainly most houses that you go into around rural Ireland, you will see a Bridget's Cross, often above the fireplace or above the door. Which is made of woven reeds and it's these interwoven, four-armed but slightly askewed crosses. It's a wonderful kind of craft activity, let's say, to come together and make these from the reeds that you've gone and picked in the field or in your garden. They're supposed to protect the household from fire and from disease and Mm. all kinds of things. Now here we have again a tradition that is associated with St. Bridget and that concerns fire. And once again, the home, the homestead, the hearth Mm. and protection from the destructive element Mm. of fire, if you like, within that sun wheel, as it's sometimes called. There's something very practical about it as well. It's, if you like, a folk charm against the kinds of misfortune that would fall on a house. And nearly all schools I go into, particularly the ones uh, who, who are dedicated to Bridget. Oh, yeah. They all are busy. I, I mean, I've been handed buckets of reeds. Yes. <laughs> as I've gone in on occasions to go, oh, you know how to make them, don't you? Yeah. Um, I did last year. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm afraid I always forget during the year. Yeah, yeah. And there are there are regional variations. Uh, there is a book which is called Bridget, uh, Saint and Goddess, which I referred to in the original podcast. And it is a wonderful collection of folklore and practice. Mm. And it's got the most wonderful collection of things like the different types of Bridget crosses. Some of them only have three arms, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And Possibly a later variant mm, representing the Trinity. Yes, yeah. So or maybe an ancient one. It, I would say it's worth, if you're interested in this, it's worth going and looking it up and I'll put up a reference to this book because I think it's a great source. Now, the Bridget mantle is not as well known these days, I've found. It's also known as the Biddy Cloth or the Bratz Bridge. And this has to do with on Bridget's Eve, so on the night before the Lola Bridge, getting a piece of rags, cloths, and laying them out on the ground, usually before sunset is the thing, with the idea that on the eve of her festival, St. Bridget walks the land of Ireland and that the the morning dew is then sort of infused with her healing virtues. And so when you go and gather up these pieces of cloth after sunrise, then you can use them for the healing of your minor aches and pains, your headaches and your toothache and so on. It's not as well known now as it once was, but it is still another one of those practices associated with this time of year. There's a lot around protecting your house from illness mm. or all those kinds of things, asking for Bridget's presence in your house. There's other customs around welcoming her into the house and so on. So it's all those things about hospitality, mm. uh, prosperity for yes, the year yeah. and protection. Yeah, absolutely. Now I did mention Cormac's glossary. Yes. As a source which uh, attempted to establish Bridget as a pre-Christian goddess. Yes. Now that's interesting considering its uh, provenance. Exactly. And this, I think, is worth looking at quite closely. It's Cormac's glossary from the 9th century that states that there was Bridget, who was a two of the Danon goddess of Smithcraft healing and poetry. That's where it comes from. Now, like I say, it was 9th century. It was written by Cormac Uchulainain, who was a bishop king of Cashel. By the 9th century, Ireland was a very well-established Christian country and the church was flourishing, as was the cult of Bridget, St. Bridget herself. We're even talking post-Synod of Whitby. So this is a Roman Christian church, despite Ireland's kind of slight Definitely independence in the by then. Absolutely, yeah. So it's it's much more similar to Christianity as we would now recognise it, let's say. At the time that Cormac was writing, there was this very powerful monastery and kingdom in Leinster and Kildare, which was under the protection of St. Bridget. She's mm-hmm. said to have appeared on battlefields and all kinds of things on, on the side Treading of the righteous. The yeah, exactly. But even then, that part of Leinster, and especially Kildare, it's wealthy, it is very fertile. I mean, Curra is and Kildare are the best, it's the best horse-rearing land in the country. And that tells you mm-hmm. about its wealth and status. But the Bridget's foundation was very powerful, politically powerful at that time. Well, tell me about the glossary. Now, what exactly was it? Well, it's part of what we've been terming the Levergavola strand or the synthetic strand within Irish literature. Although earlier. It's earlier than Levergavola, but Cormac was trying to create a kind of early encyclopedia or dictionary. And in fact, it's not unlike what Isadora of Seville was trying to do. It's sort of trying to gather all the world's knowledge together in one place. Mm. 
But more than that, trying to link up all the bits and turn it into a unified view of the world and of knowledge. So he was collecting together the things that every schoolboy knows, as well as kind of scraps of story or of even rumour, anecdote, myth, and putting it together with a lot of speculation, particularly when it comes to etymologies and the meanings of words. Hence, it's structured as a glossary. Mm-hmm. So it's giving an idea of how we understand this word or this term, often quite archaic or obscure terms, and doing this job of synthetic etymology, which is, well, it sounds like it's an X and a Y, and mm. so this is how we get a new meaning from it. Sounds like what some of the, how some of the scholars in the Celtic Twilight oh, were yeah. trying to handle some of the medieval texts. Well, yeah, you know, it was another one of those times of that bit of nostalgia and trying to put something old into a contemporary mm. framework of understanding. Cormac wasn't particularly concerned about accuracy. This is before the birth, if you like, of history as we now know it, certainly in Ireland. The Saxons were great. They invented history as we now know it. The Irish, not so much. It was okay. Yeah. (laughs) It was a different thing over here. It was still a story as well as a record, you know. A bit like Geraldus Cambrensis in the 12th century. Yes. a bit like that. Yeah, but that, that I think, had even more of the deliberate propaganda Mm. in it as well. Oh, you're absolutely right. That's another question. It is another one altogether. But the glossary does give us this fascinating window into how the people of the time regarded the old stories. But that doesn't mean it's a reliable historical resource for us. It's not that kind of straightforward record of ancient tales that are unchanged for centuries. It's like a contemporary work of literature from the ninth mm. century. I is, think it's better seen as literature than history. Is this why you regard it as a bit of a dodgy source? Yeah, and it. I'm afraid I get a bit broken recordy about it because so often when we try and trace back the, well, why does everybody know that Bridget is a goddess of poetry, healing and smithcraft? Oh, it's from Cormac's glossary. And it is full of fascinating stuff, but you need to treat it with discretion and, I'd say, bushels of salt. Mm. Of course, Bishop Cogitosus, mm-hmm. whom I mentioned earlier, the one who wrote one of the early lives of Bridget, yes. also had financial and political reasons for wanting to promote his own saints. Absolutely. I, I mean, the more popular a saint becomes, the more pilgrimages get made. Yep. And then the more pilgrimages get made, the more money goes into the church. Yes. And the, really, the, the main way that the medieval church made money was through pilgrims who came to see a powerful holy well and relics that had a strong reputation for performing miracles yeah so the more you could connect up and the more ancient you could make your character yeah the more important and numinous it became exactly it was tourism let's Mm. let's not beat about the bush pilgrimage was the birth of tourism and i find it interesting that cormac who like we said was a bishop king found it necessary or perhaps useful to connect saint bridget with a pre-christian figure Mm. and that seems to be part of what he was doing. Now, we have come across this before. Just look at how Cullum Kill, St. Cullum Kill, was being connected up with Mungon in order to give the later saint a kind of legitimacy. Mm. It went both ways. It meant that the pre-Christian story could continue to be told and still be respectable. But I think that it went both ways. And it's kind of curious to think that a saint needed legitimacy from something that went beyond Christianity. And so it gives 
the, these saints, these Christian saints, a green passport. It makes them homegrown Irish, mm-hmm. something that's mm-hmm. native and specific. Oh, it to goes Ireland. back a long way. It certainly does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very interesting. Mm. So, can we come to any conclusions? Well, I think more so maybe than when we did this the first time <laughs> round. I think we were a little bit lost that first time. And to start with, there was very clearly a continental goddess, Brig or uh, Brigantia, as she was known on the continent. She was widely venerated. She was loved across the Celtic world. But she doesn't seem to have much in common with the grieving mother of Moitura, or even with the generous, open-hearted Irish Saint Bridget. It seems unlikely that Brigantia had a substantial following in Ireland, unless, mm. just unless, you accept Ptolemy's map. Mm. In this case, you could propose a small number of Celtic outsiders in Leinster who were popularising her name in that area. Yeah. However, in no form is our Brig or Bridget to be seen as a representation of victory. Mm. I mean, far from it. And in any case, Moitura is really a Connacht story. Yes, of course. We want to claim ownership of that one. I should think so. <laughs> yes. But this continual suggestion that St. Bridget follows maintaining some kind of ancient practice of uh, a coven of priestesses keeping a sacred flame alive from pre-Christian days. It's everywhere. It's very pervasive and attractive, but unfortunately unlikely, I would say, from Mm. what we've seen. There's just no pre-medieval evidence for this at all. Yeah, and I read somewhere... Comments such as the worship of the Celtic fire goddess continued in an apparently unbroken line through the conversion of the entire world around it to Christianity. I find that a little misleading. It's not downright fanciful, I'm afraid. But what we do have is a group of educated, self-determining women in what could well have been Ireland's earliest monastic-style settlement. Yes. Deserving of the high status and honour accorded to poets. Yes even perhaps choosing to settle on a place already known for its poets, if, mm. if that isn't too fanciful as well. I don't think so. That's part of my theory about why monastic yeah. schools and settlements succeeded here. And this is where the continuity may well lie. Yeah, and in fact, if we just look at how St. Bridget's father, Dovthok, is described so often, both in the early uh, hagiographies and in modern commentary, as a druid or some kind of druidic chieftain, what we find so often is that when you see the word druid, it's usually much more appropriate to insert the word poet. Mm-hmm. And particularly some of that hagiographical stuff about how she was part of a poetic class and poetic mm-hmm. status. And then if you look at the monastic structure as being so similar to the poetic schools, you might be right about that being its continuity. And the, uh, in Ireland, one blends into the other. Mm. That is definitely where you get the unbroken the, line. The so-called Druidic or Bardic schools mm. do blend into the monastics. Absolutely, absolutely. And as I've said before, I feel like that's why monastic life was so successful here. Mm. It was superimposing or absorbing a pre-existing set of structure. And why the monastic setting allowed for this recording and retention of the ancient pre-Christian stories. Exactly. Certainly in early times without too Mm. much alteration. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, 
that endless task of trying to decide if there was ever an original historical St. Bridget is also, I think, a lost cause. And I don't think it's terribly helpful to try and needle out whether this was true in our sense or not. But her cult was clearly established. That is a historic fact. And it was very powerful, politically and intellectually influential over many centuries and it still exerts a great deal of influence today. A positive effect. Absolutely. I think definitely if you look at the Brigidine sisters, the work they do in Kildare, that's very, very positive. And I'm very proud to say that they're carrying on the tradition of St. Bridget. Now, there is one figure in pre-Christian story, I think, who might be relevant to our discussions. And that's Ethlu. We're back to Ethlu again. My (laughs) favourite. The early Irish mythologies are just not hot on gods and goddesses. Not as we now understand them. There are the people from this world and there are the others, Mm. the she, those parallels of somewhat mysterious, often spectacular neighbours. But Mm. they are neighbours. Yes. However, occasionally we do encounter echoes of figures who seem to represent something more luminous. Yeah. Now, Ethlu is such a figure. Mm. Now, she and the various Ethlus, Ethlins, Aedines, Ethnas, they're all concerned with birth, lactation, and the free flowing of milk mm. and the fertility of the land. Yeah. Ethlu and her marvellous cow who might may accompany her, or is even interchangeable with her yes. at times. Yeah. They all bring new growth and abundance. And where she walks, the land is restored and fertile, green and glowing. And we've found that everywhere, haven't yes. we? Yes, and I'm very delighted that we have. Ethlu is so strong and ubiquitous an underlying figure throughout the mythological cycle and the stories and now she's almost completely forgotten except perhaps in that form of the glass gallon. She's remembered as a cow. I know, poor woman, mind you, it's not an insult to <laughs> <It's> Old Ireland. <laughs> but she was also Bayfind, this the noble woman, the greatly honoured woman of the she of the other people and it could be that some of those aspects were absorbed by Bridget whose feast day at Imbolc would have encouraged that link to those fertile fecund practices and I just can't help feeling that Ethlu has suffered a similar fate to Mither certainly as we saw perhaps even to Oingus. I'm going to come back to that, I promise you. And it might even be in a post-Norman world. Yeah. Maybe Ethlu was as unacceptable as Mither was. Yes, it's quite possible. But Ethlu's imagery and her roles have been taken up by a shiny foreigner. I mean, perhaps the Celtic Brigantia, or at least maybe that name got attached to it. We saw before how Lug's continental popularity has concerted him or insinuated him into the action of Moitura. With Brigid, we also, as well as that popular Celtic shiny foreigner, we have the cult of the celebrity saint. And that gathers even more folklore and practice to her as Just she goes as along. Colm Kill was a celebrity saint. Oh yeah, big time. <laughs> you know, pinched a load of places that belonged to other local saints. Oh yeah. Because everybody had heard of Colm Kill. Yeah. And he was another one of round whom stories gathered like moths in moonlight. Yeah. And I think it's the same with Bridget. Yes, yeah. Now we did suggest when we did the, the podcast Revisiting Ethlu. Mm that her imagery and symbolism became attached to the cult of Mary in Ireland. Yeah. But thinking about it, other elements, particularly of fertility and fecundity, can be seen in aspects of St Bridget. Yes, and Bridget, indeed, is often referred to as Mary of the Gale. And she's also described as the foster mother of Christ. Yeah, so I think if you strip away those Ethel-like qualities, you're left 
with the image of the brig in Moitura. And what you have there is a Pieta image. You have the woman holding and mourning the body of her dead son. This is so powerful an image. Maybe this is why she's gets called an Irish Mary. It's no wonder really with that image, is it? I know. So what can we say about Bridget? I've had one thought. Mm. I think compared to St Brendan's grim and unyielding belief in predestination, mm. or Columkill's stubborn and occasionally bellicose <laughs> beliefs, Bridget is a bright ray of spring sunshine on which I would happily hang my coat. Amen. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Agalaf Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Obolacorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.